you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 1. Uh, last week we began a series in the book of Amos, one of the uh, minor prophets. This is the first writing prophet, as he is referred to, meaning uh, there were prophets before Amos, uh, but mostly their message was a preached and an oral uh, prophecy like Elijah and Elisha. Uh, but Amos in the 8th century B.C., uh, was the first to write down his prophecy. Uh, if you are looking for it in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 811. Typically, at Leonardtown Baptist, we stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Uh, but I just want to make you aware, if you would have trouble standing for, say, four or five minutes as I read a longer text today, uh, you are welcome to remain seated. I'll be reading from chapter 1 and verse 3 to the end of chapter 2. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word from Amos. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore, I will send fire against Haziel's palace and it will consume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Avon and the one who wields the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Aram will be exiled to Kir. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Gaza and it will consume its citadels. I will cut off the ruler from Ashdod and the one who wields the scepter from Ashkelon. I will also turn my hand against Ekron and the remainder of the Philistines will perish. The Lord God has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Tyre, and it will consume its citadels. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion. His anger tore at him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. Therefore, I will send fire against Teman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Therefore, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah, and it will consume its citadels. There will be shouting on the day of battle and a violent wind on the day of the storm. Their king and his princes will go into exile together. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Therefore, I will send fire against Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kiriath. Moab will die with a tumult, with shouting and the sound of the ram's horn. I will cut off the judge from the land and kill all its officials with him. The Lord has spoken. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. 
The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I am about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself, and the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. This is the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Just and true are thy ways, O Lord, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee and glorify thy name? Father, I pray that you would be exalted and that we would see our only hope is found in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It will be my effort today to show you three things about the Lord's judgment from our text. That's at the very highest level that my goal is for you to walk away and understand these three things. The Lord is patient before judgment. The Lord is impartial in judgment. And the Lord is unimpeachable for judgment. Those are the three main points of your outline. And as you can see from the outline, there's a lot of other ground that we'll cover today. So I don't want you to get lost in the weeds of the outline and miss the big picture. Today's message is about the Lord's judgment. And we will hear about it from this prophet who was from Tekoa. The very first thing we learn is the Lord's judgment, that he is patient before judgment. You can see this in the repeated phrase that we read over and over again in chapter 1 and 2. I will not relent for the punishment of three crimes, even four. This three and four pattern is also found, say, in the book of Proverbs. But unlike the Proverbs passages, the book of Amos and the message of Amos, his prophecies don't list the four items, like for three, even four, and then in Proverbs it lists the four things. This just lists the one. 
Some commentators think that the purpose is just to highlight the worst of the sins or the one that finally triggered God's wrath. There are others that argue that the numbers three and four should be added together for a more symbolic number seven, suggesting that these nations have reached the fullness of their sin. My personal opinion is more in line with the former point of view, but it doesn't really matter which point of view you come to the conclusion of because the sin that is listed is the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. It is the climactic sin and serves as a representative of all of the nation's sins. In other words, if three filled up this metaphorical measure of the cup of God's wrath in judgment toward a nation would have been overflowing. And the one sin is the one that pushed God's patience past the breaking point. It really doesn't matter which position you take. Again, the point is simply this. The Lord has a certain tolerance level for a nation's sin. But when it reaches a point, the tolerance ends and judgment is the inevitable outcome. We need to recognize then this morning that the Lord our God is, in fact, slow to anger, and he is patient up to a point. This is kind of the opposite of the way the world often thinks about God, though, isn't it? Whenever the judgment of God is meted out on a nation, sometimes as people study the Bible and they see things like God's judgment on the nations, they criticize the severity and think it's cruel to take vengeance on sin. But Amos's message concurs with other parts of Scripture that says God is very long-suffering, and he is not quick to bring judgment. There is not a single nation on this list that doesn't testify to the forbearance and the patience of God. Every one of them says there were multiple sins for which God could have judged the nations, but he was patient up to the point where he could no longer overlook their sin and had to bring judgment. The lesson for us today in 2023, studying the prophet Amos, is this. Don't abuse God's forbearance. Don't abuse God's patience. One of the really neat things about studying Amos 1 and 2 more closely was being able to see the extraordinary connections between the passages of Scripture in Amos and the logic of Paul's arguments in Romans chapter 1 through 3. Many of you know I love to study the book of Romans. In fact, one author called the opening chapters of Romans a straight lift out of Amos. Did you pick that up? We're supposed to see that uh, this picture of judgment being painted on all nations, on Gentiles and Jews, and God's impartiality is what Paul is referring to in, say, Romans chapter 2. And Paul says this in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, in the context of chapter 2 of Romans, Paul is basically saying, you know, everyone who judges other people is without excuse because we all do the same things. You think about it, that's exactly what Amos 1 and 2 proves. The Gentiles and the Jews were guilty of sin, and they were all deserving of God's judgment. But Paul knows that God is not 
uh, impatient in bringing that judgment. So he warns the reader of Romans not to presume upon the riches of God's kindness and the riches of his forbearance. The question for you today is, are you heaping up a measure? Are you heaping up a pile of God's wrath? Are you storing up God's judgment to the place where it will overflow on you? Dear friend, the Lord is patient before judgment. But there is coming a day when he will judge and repay us for every wicked thought and every evil deed. So I encourage you, I exhort you today, don't continue to pile up reasons for God to pronounce his sentence upon you. There's one thing you can be sure of, and the text today proves it. The Lord will be fair. He will give us exactly what we deserve. That's clear in the book of Amos, isn't it? The Lord doesn't play favorites. Quite the opposite. In Amos chapter 1 and 2, we find secondly that the Lord is impartial in judgment. The Lord is impartial in judgment. Again, Paul is following along in this logic of Amos 1 and 2. And in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, God shows no partiality. His judgment is impartial for any nation, regardless of their relationship with him or whether or not they've received the benefit of having the Torah. In other words, the Gentiles were not judged by the Jewish rule book. They were judged by the law written on their hearts. The Gentiles were not being judged by their strict obedience to the Torah. They didn't have it. They were being judged by the law of God written on their hearts. What God requires of the surrounding nations is not some sort of precise obedience to rules they could have never known. Instead, he expects them to treat other humans with basic dignity and respect. Because again, just to backtrack in the logic of Romans chapter 1, nature reveals that God exists. And we are all his creatures. And he expects us to treat one another with a certain level of dignity because we know that we are created. We find, what we find in the case of the surrounding Gentile nations is that their violations are the violations of a basic code of human behavior. Whether friend or foe, kinsman or stranger, neighbor or member of a foreign nation, God holds even pagans responsible to a basic level of dignity, mercy, and respect. Now, incidentally, this is why even a secular society that would profess no allegiance to God or the God of the Bible grieves, don't they, when they see war crimes. When secular society sees atrocities out there or mass murders, there is some sense of basic morality that is written on our hearts that even people who don't acknowledge God will say, that's wrong. And thus, Romans 2, verses 14 and following Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, even uh, though they do not have the law, they are a law to themselves. In other words, they didn't have to have the Torah to treat other people with this kind of basic dignity. What the Gentiles show is that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And Paul says their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to Christ Jesus, God judges the secrets of men. 
So what we'll see as we skim back through these first six pronouncements of judgment is that they can be grouped into pairs. Now, I'm indebted to the commentator Alec Motyer for this insight. The, the first pair, Damascus and Gaza, are about general relationships of life, human being to human being. The second pair, Tyre and Edom, are about particular relationships, particular responsibilities of life. That would be like brother to brother. And the third pair, Ammon and Moab, are about the special claims of life, and they regard the attitudes that the strong should have toward the weak. Six basic principles of human conduct are in view, and I've done my best to summarize them in what follows. So consider with me first how in Damascus, cruelty was exacted. In Damascus, cruelty was exacted. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we read that the sin that pushed God's patience to an end was when the Syrians had threshed Gilead with iron sledges. A sledge like that would have been used behind oxen and drawn over wheat or barley to separate the grain from the straw. And it doesn't seem likely that they literally uh, butchered humans with iron sledges, although that cannot be ruled out entirely. Whether it was literal or metaphorical, the point is clear. It doesn't matter if a human being is an enemy or a captive of war. The principle for everyone is don't treat others inhumanely. Don't treat others inhumanely. Even in war, there are certain obligations that mercy imposes or humanity requires of us. And in a military community like ours, this text can serve as a good reminder of the kind of honor and dignity with which our armed forces ought to serve. We must never act out in unnecessary cruelty toward anyone People are not animals, and let me quickly add, we shouldn't be cruel to animals either. But the point is this, we are not barbarians. Damascus had gone too far, and God would send fire against the former king's citadels. That was another way of saying warfare was about to come upon Damascus, and their ultimate end would be exile to the place from which they came. Now, moving from the northeast to the southwest in Israel, uh, southwest of Israel, we find then in verses six through eight in Gaza, commercialization was exhibited. Commercialization was exhibited. Now, during the Philistine border raids, entire communities of people had been taken captive. But the sin that pushed God's patience to an end was when they sold the slaves like property to Edom. This was an unnecessarily cruel treatment of the captives and disregarded the welfare of human beings all for the sake of making a buck. The principle for everyone to heed in 2023 is don't sell people like things. Don't sell people like things. And we'd like to think we're past this. I was at a breakfast at uh, King's Christian Academy a few weeks back. The topic of sex trafficking was brought up. The grim reality is that while we like to celebrate the end of chattel slavery in America, there are still people being kidnapped and sold like property for the sexual gratification of sick human beings who are heaping up judgment and wrath on their own heads. And let me just quickly add that the pornography industry is a prime driver of the trafficking business. So men, let me exhort you, 
Women, by the statistics, let me exhort you. Stop believing the lie that your internet use is so-called not hurting anybody. God is just. He will repay every evil thought and every wicked deed. We move due north on the west coast from Gaza to Tyre, where we find that in Tyre, a covenant was exited. A covenant was exited. In verse 9 of chapter 1, it seems as though uh, that Tyre is guilty of the same sin as Gaza, but there is this added phrase. Note that God's judgment was not just the selling of the community of exiles. The sin that pushed God's patience to an end was that they sold those slaves in an express violation of a treaty they had made with kin. This could be referring to the covenant that existed between Solomon and Hiram, or perhaps to that between Ahab and Eshbel of Sidon, as a result of which the uh, Jezebel became Ahab's wife. But the real principle for us today in 2023, don't break your word. Don't break your word. Broken treaties mar the pages of history from ancient all the way to modern times. And it may be true that from time to time, sometimes promises should be honored by repenting of ever having made them and taking the due consequences that come from stepping out of your word. But we should never, ever, ever break our word or treat a covenant as negotiable simply for self-interest or self-advantage. Once again, I don't take for granted the fact that in a room today there are people who will attend meetings in the Pentagon. Many of us are of an age where we will vote for a president and should at the very least consider the candidate's foreign policy in our decision-making process. And I simply want to point out that Amos makes it clear that when it comes to international affairs, nations should not be ruled by pragmatism alone. Some countries take as their approach that whatever is in our own self-interest is whatever will take precedent, regardless of promises that have been previously made. Now, as a nation... They may think they're getting away with that. But this text shows us God is watching and he cares about truth and integrity of promises and treaties and covenants. The prophet then moves southeast. So if you've been following along, we started, I'm doing it backwards. So started here, went here, up here and down here. And if you just kind of look at the visual of that, it's putting Israel in the crosshairs. Okay. So he moves southeast and he begins dealing with the relatives of the Israelites. And the Edomites were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And what Amos says about them is that in Edom, compassion was extinguished. In Edom, compassion was extinguished. The connection with the pronouncement against Tyre is that both sins were committed against a brother. They were committed against kin. In this case, the sin that pushed God's patience to an end was perpetual anger that the Edomites fueled in their own hearts toward the Israelites. They would apparently commit border raids against neighboring Judah, which was in the south, and they would exterminate entire populations. The offense was so heinous that the next book of the Bible is really all about that sin. In Obadiah, if you flip a few pages, verses 10 through 12, we read, Again, God speaking judgment to Edom. 
You will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day, on the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of their distress. One commentator wrote about this sort of implacable anger of the Edomites. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants some of you in this room here today to listen carefully to his words. He writes, quote, Anger, like a bonfire, will die down in time. Adding fuel to the fire keeps it going. And this is what Edom did. Relationships in many families are constantly stirred up by family members whose anger rages on and on, unchecked by brotherly love. That's from Billy Smith writing in the New American Commentary, which is, by the way, in our church library here if you ever want to check out that commentary. My prayer is that we will all add a little Philadelphia to our lives. Let's have a little brotherly love, so to speak, and heed this basic principle Don't harbor hatred. Don't harbor hatred. We move north from the southeast to our final pair of Ammon and Moab. Ammon is a little further north than Moab, but both of these peoples are also related to Israel. If you're looking for the backstory of that, you can check out Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38 later today. And find out that the Ammonites and Moabites came from Lot's ancestral relationship with his two daughters. What we see at the end of chapter 1 of Amos is that in Ammon, carelessness about unborn life was excused. Carelessness about unborn human life was excused. It was excused as not being as important as expanding Ammon's borders. You see, like Damascus from the north, Ammon from the east would come west and engage in warfare against Gilead, looking to gain territory. But someone decided that raiding would be a lot easier and far less necessary on an ongoing basis if you brutally murdered the unborn children of the Gileadites. Their ambitions to have this materialistic prosperity and the growth of their own territory came at the cost of unborn lives. And it pushed God's patience to its end. God pronounced judgment on Rabbah, which is present-day Ammon in Jordan, by promising warfare that would come upon its citadels. The principle for us this morning from Ammon is don't put personal ambition above the rights of the helpless. May the Lord help us in America. Finally, When we look at chapter 2 of Amos, we see that in Moab, a corpse was exhumed. In Moab, a corpse was exhumed. Verse 1 tells us that the Moabites burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, the ancient Jewish interpreters say that they used that lime then to plaster the walls of the Moabite king's palace. Now, regardless of whether or not that actually happened, what becomes evident is that this sort of action is petty. It's an unnecessary violation of the universally respected act of the burial of the dead. 
Alec Motyer writes, quote, Could anything publicize more clearly the senseless irrationality of a nourished hatred than to see a venerable corpse dragged from its tomb to suffer pointless indignities? And he says, hatred is like that. It poisons the heart much more than it hurts its object. He's dead. What are you, what are you doing? You're doing nothing. You are accomplishing nothing except poisoning your own heart with this senseless hatred. In reality, the hatred of the Moabite king turned out to be the thing that pushed God's patience to its end. Verse 2 tells us that this perverse act would boomerang back on his own head. Moab would die in a tumult. And the principle for all of us today is don't dig up the past. Don't dig up the past. Leave the past in the past. One person has said, there's no point in burying the hatchet if you're going to put a tombstone where you marked it. Like you don't bury the hatchet and leave a place to say, oh, okay, I can come back and find that here later. Don't dig up the past. Leave the past in the past. Now, some of you, when you stood for the reading of this text, could not possibly have imagined how practical this has been. And we're not done yet. Because I would like to say that the reality is we are more like the Jews than the Gentiles. He judged the Jews who had access to God's law. Amos made it a point to start out there with those other nations because he wanted to get everyone nodding their head. Yep, God, you just get those heathens, those pagans over there. They are terrible folks. Yes, judge them, God. And then all of a sudden, the bullseye is getting closer and closer to home. Now, remember, Amos is from the southern kingdom of Judah, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but he is preaching his message primarily in the northern kingdom. But the northern kingdom would still claim to worship the same God. They worship Yahweh and they share the same scriptures as the southern kingdom does. And so we note that the Jews, letter B, were judged for abandoning the covenant relationship with God, both in principle and in practice. The Jewish people were judged for abandoning their covenant relationship with God in principle and in practice. I put it like that because in chapter 3, in verse 1, we read, Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought up from the land of Egypt. That's not just the north. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, it's clear that Amos is pronouncing judgment on the north and the south. He's not a narrow nationalist, like willing to pull the punches when it comes to the south and only deliver the blows to the north. He tells us then, for example, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, that in Judah, God's commands were excluded. In Judah, God's commands were excluded. See in chapter 2, verse 4, where Amos says, they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. They've despised the truth of God and they've followed after lies, which is another way of saying that they're worshiping idols in the south. And the impartiality of God's judgment is on display when he just 
carries on with the exact same formula as he did with all the other nations. He says in Judah, for three crimes and for four, even four, I will not relent from punishing them. His patience was pushed to its end when the people of God excluded his commands from their way of living. To show how God is not playing favorites, he promises to send warfare on Judah and against the capital city, Jerusalem, just like he promised judgment on all the other nations and their capitals. The principle for us this morning from the pronouncement of judgment against Judah is don't ignore God's word. Don't ignore God's word. What we will see in the next verses when Amos pronounces judgment on Israel, meaning the northern ten tribes, is that when the Israelites ignored the word of God, unholy conduct was exacerbated. So number two, little, little two, in Israel, unholy conduct was exacerbated. Amos lists out a number of sins that they had committed in uh, chapter 2 and verse 6 and following, like economic oppression, even for small gains, denying justice to the oppressed, rampant immorality, keeping garments of poor people that were taken in pledge, enriching oneself through fines that were imposed upon the innocent. And the picture here is actually like Amos's painting a a portrait or some sort of big picture where all of these things are all in the exact same scene. Men having sexual relations with shrine, shrine prostitutes, father and son sharing the same woman, while lying on garments they had taken from poor people as collateral for loans, on location at pagan altars all over the countryside, and they combined all this with drinking bouts at the shrines using wine that they had taken from powerless people, all in the same picture. It's just gross, rampant immorality. And what makes matters worse is they did it all knowingly. They knew better from God's word. Like Judah, they had been brought out of Egypt. They had been given the land that the Amorites had previously possessed. That's what verses 9 through 11 describe, the way God had given them the land. In other words, they were in the promised land because of God's grace. And instead of gratitude to God for all that he had done, they were doubly ungrateful to him by their disobedience. They even took the prophets and the Nazarites that God had provided as good examples uh, and those who would call for reform. And they shut up the prophets and made the Nazarites disregard their vows by making them drink. And the picture is just abysmal. But that's the next principle for us today, for all of us in 2023, namely, don't be surprised at the results of ignoring God's word. A wise pastor once said, and I have it written in my uh, student NIV student Bible in my office on the inside cover. It says, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. We are often slow to see the effects of sin, though, in our own lives, aren't we? John Calvin writes, We often see that those who are 
intractable and refractory in their disposition, when directly addressed, are not very attentive. But when they hear the sins of others, and especially when they hear something about punishment, their ears perk up. They start to pay attention. The prophet Amos therefore designed by degrees to lead the Israelites to a teachable state of mind. For he knew them to be torpid in their indulgences. That just means lethargic in their indulgences and also blinded by presumption so that they could not be easily brought under the yoke. Hence, he sets before them the punishment that was soon to fall on the neighboring nations to get them to wake up. Now, to put old John into 21st century English, what he is saying is the Israelites had been along, uh, had been led along by Amos from nation to nation, growing in their eagerness to pass judgment on others when in fact they themselves were guilty of the same things. And Amos skillfully works them up to a point where they can't help but see that God's judgment will be impartial and truly it will be unimpeachable. The Lord is unimpeachable for his judgment. That word means it can't be questioned. It can't be doubted that he's fair. God is totally trustworthy in his judgment. With seven seven different pictures of a warrior at the end of chapter 2, God shows no amount of military strength will be able to negate the pending destruction and devastation God will bring on the northern kingdom. Now, when compared to the pronouncements on the other nations, there's clearly no room for negotiation either. His judgment is just, and the Lord has shown in the words of the prophet, he will not play favorites. And as I close today, I want you to see that not only did uh, Paul in Romans see the impartiality of God, treating the Gentiles and Jewish nations with equal judgment, But Paul also saw the knowing and willful disobedience of the Israelites as the very reason why no one can claim to impeach the justice of God. The knowing and willful disobedience of the Israelites is why no one can say God is not doing this fairly. Now see if you follow along with what Paul says as I close in Romans chapter 3. Verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? You're telling me in chapter 1, you know, Gentiles are under God's just judgment. We're good with that, you know, like Jewish people would be. And then, But then you turn it around and say, wait a minute, the Jewish people in chapter 2 are also guilty? Then what advantage was it to being a Jew? Like if everyone's going to be judged by God, what advantage do they have? Paul says much in every way. And then he starts a numbered list and leaves it off with number one. He has one point. He says, to begin with, uh, verse two, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's all they needed. They had been given the law. What advantage has the Jew? The revelation of God at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, how to live a holy life, how to be in a covenant relationship with him. Much in every way. Paul asks then, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says. 
Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written that you, meaning God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you, meaning God, are judged by humans. When we pretend to think God is unjust, he's going to be proven unimpeachable. Notice Paul is saying the Jews had a major advantage over the Gentiles. They had the oracles of God, but their unfaithfulness does quite the opposite from showing that God is unfaithful. It shows just how sinful humans can really be. God is just for judging them according to his revealed word. In verse 9, Paul then comes back to the question and says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, in reality, no, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So in the end, Jews aren't any better off because they're just as sinful as the Gentiles. If you're concerned about that statement, reread Amos 1 and 2. That is the point that Amos is bringing home. You can't miss it. Or you could read chapter 3, of Romans verses 11 through 18, which I'm skipping right now. Okay. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. They forget God. They don't keep peace. None of them do the right thing. Okay. Nobody does it. Jews and Gentiles. So in verse 19, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The effect of giving the law to the Jews was not to unfairly privilege them. It only served to silence the rest of the world. Because it proved the Gentiles weren't off the hook for sinning because of a lack of awareness of God's law. In other words, the Gentiles could be over here and say, wait a minute, God, you know, I know you say you're going to pronounce judgment, but you haven't given us what you gave the Jewish people. They have your law. Of course, Paul is taking that argument away by saying that the law of God was written on their hearts and there are laws to themselves when they kind of follow that without even being instructed from the law. But over here... What happened is when God gave the law to the Jewish people, they did know and they still didn't obey. So it takes away the argument. You can't say that made it any better for them. In fact, what it brought was more awareness of how holy God is and how sinful we are. They became painfully aware, the Jewish did, of the depths of their sin through the giving of the law. It's not just extraordinarily vile crimes against humanity that will bring God's wrath. What you, in fact, learn from the giving of the law is that it is the mistreatment of the poor, the profaning of God's name, and even the motives of our hearts. Paul says, I didn't even know what it was to covet until the law said you shouldn't covet. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I'm coveting all the time. My heart is continually sinning. You see, friend, God's judgment is unimpeachable. He doesn't wink at sin. He never has. So much is God concerned with treating everyone fairly 
that Paul continues to describe what he did. Now, we don't often think of the cross of Jesus as an explanation of why God is fair, why God is just, why is God righteous. But I would argue that is, in fact, the point of Romans chapter 3, point of the book of Romans. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The justice of God is revealed in the gospel. The justice of God is revealed at the cross. See it in Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness or the justice, that word means, it can mean both in the Greek, of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Let me explain that word. Propitiation means to satisfy his wrath. In other words, God is just and righteous and has anger and wrath towards sin and evil. And this says that God put Jesus forward to satisfy his just punishment for sin as a gift by grace, if you will receive it. Then it's to be received uh, it's a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, Paul explains this, meaning the propitiatory lifeblood giving work of Jesus Christ on the cross to satisfy God's wrath on your sin and mine was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's justice because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What is that about? What about David? What about Abraham? What about Old Testament saints? How are they saved? I mean, David says, blesses the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blesses the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. What gives you that kind of assurance, David? How can you say that over here? God in his divine patience had passed over a heap measure of sin in the Old Testament because the blood of bulls and goats can never satisfy that. Why do we need a human savior, the catechisms ask? Because in his human nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. We couldn't have been covered by the blood of a goat. It was never meant to cover their sins. It was meant to point them to the one who would. David, by faith, apprehends the promise of the Messiah to come. And he knows that his sins will be covered in a work that he has not yet seen. The cross showed God was just in forgiving those who placed their faith in the one to come. So he says it shows that he was divine forbearance in in former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. If you think I've been using righteousness a little loosely, there it is. It's to show he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I'm over here in the New Testament. Do you see that on this side of the stage? This is the New Testament side of the cross. And over here, we look back at Calvary and we say, yes, yes, I I can understand how God did this. He gave all of my sin and all of my debt that I owe, and he placed it on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so when he punished Jesus 
That was my punishment I deserved. And I received his righteousness by faith. And I can understand that on this side. But, but what the cross did, and Paul says it, it, he had passed over former sins, so it proves he was just for that. Because he had made a atoning work for that by sending Jesus to pay the penalty for all those and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. It proves that God is fair, that God did not wink when David committed adultery, that God did not wink when David committed murder, that he didn't just blow by the sins of the former Old Testament saints. He punished them on Jesus. The judgment of God is ultimately satisfied in one way or another. Either his wrath is poured out on Christ for you as you receive the free gift of righteousness by faith in Jesus' atonement, or as John puts it in John's gospel, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We are either covered by the blood of Jesus or you've got God's wrath coming. Are you storing up God's judgment on yourself for the day of wrath when Christ is revealed at the end of all time? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Friend, I pray that today you will decide to receive the gift of grace God offers us in his son Jesus Because one thing I know for sure is that on Judgment Day, no one will be able to say, God, that's not fair. No one will say, you didn't give me what I deserve. You will know experientially then what I'm trying to warn you of now. So don't wait until it's too late to believe this truth. Don't wait until it's too late to believe this truth. The Lord is patient to a point. That's why Peter's epistle says that he has delayed his coming. It's the patience of God. Oh, you want to mock it and say, yeah, where's Christ at? You know, it's been like 2,000 years. I want to say, repent and believe the good news before he comes again and you are judged. The Lord is impartial. No person, no race is getting special treatment. And the Lord is unimpeachable. Just and true are thy ways, O Lord. That's a song that the saints will sing and shout hallelujah when the smoke rises from the furnace of God's judgment. You see, I don't know how even today I believe it by faith, but we will sing in joy and faith will be turned to sight and we will understand clearly the just judgment of God's wrath towards sinners in hell. And we will sing, just and true are thy ways, O Lord, as the smoke rises from the furnace of God's judgment. The Lord is roaring even today. Judgment is coming. 
But praise God, he has been kind and patient. He has made a way for all of that just judgment to be poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. And so I wonder, friend, will you take refuge in him? Do not delay.